Welcome to another episode of the Young Parents Podcast brought to you by James Inc. I am Jesse Ulrich, the occasional co-host and editor, and I'm going to let our host of the podcast, Brianna Hamilton, take it from here. Brianna, how you doing? Hi, Jesse. Hey, I'm good. Today, we have three guests, and I would like them to introduce themselves individually and tell us who they are. Well, so super quickly, I am Leah, and I am the president of James Inc.'s Young Parent Advisory Board. Also, I am a peer health educator with Take Control Initiative, and that's all. Catherine, you want to take it away? Sure. I'm Catherine Redanzos. I use she and they pronouns, and I'm the Education and Outreach Manager at Take Control Initiative. I'm happy to be here. Go, Jenny. <laughs> Hi, and I'm Jenny Briggs. My pronouns are she and her. I serve as Program Director with Amplify Youth Health Collective. For me, I had the birds and the bees talk uncomfortably with my mother, so I knew how sex worked. I knew how pregnancy worked. And when I started having sex, you know, I had that, you know, mental thing in my head on how it was to go. I'd been having sex for what I consider some time. And pregnancy just never happened for me. I was one of those girls who periods came like clockwork. They never switched. I knew ovulation started, I believe, three days after your period ended. I knew that. I knew the fertile week right after your period. So I kept track of all of those things. And when I'm having sex and pregnancy isn't happening, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll just write it off as maybe that's just not me. It doesn't, it can't happen for me because I'm not blind to the fact that I might be infertile. Or so I'd convince myself that I was because it would have happened. You know, I'm having sex. I'm not protected. I'm not on birth control. So it just, I'm not meant to have a kid until I got pregnant. And I was like, okay, well, I can't have a kid. So what was I doing wrong that I was keeping track and thought I knew and didn't know? I guess for Jenny and Catherine, is there anything that you would like to say about that for girls who like me, who kind of know, but don't really fully know? I'll start with Jenny. Sure. So I think cycle tracking can be a really, really helpful tool for some people to understand when they're most likely to get pregnant. It's also really important to know that, especially during the first few years of menstruation, it's very, very common for cycles to be really different every month. So even though it kind of looks like your period is coming at the same time every month, it's possible that ovulation is happening at different times right? Or some months somebody might ovulate one month and then not ovulate the next month. And so knowing, knowing that, kind of knowing that there can be irregular irregularities within the cycle and that it's not like a perfect science, right? can be really, really important for people to know so that they don't draw that, that conclusion. Can you explain what ovulation is for people who may not know what that term is or what it means? So sometimes we think of menstruation or getting your period as like, that's the menstrual cycle, right? It's just those five to seven days or two to seven days where people have a tissue, blood, things like that, that exit the vagina. But the menstrual cycle is actually, it never ends. So day one is when somebody's period starts, right? And that's how you can kind of twin the first day of the menstrual cycle is, is because somebody gets their period usually about two weeks or 14 days 
after that, after the menstrual period begins is when ovulation occurs, somewhere in there. And then about 14 days after that, somebody will start their period again. And ovulation is when the ovaries release an egg, right? And the egg kind of like comes down and sits in that fallopian tube and waits for 24, 48 hours or so to be fertilized. Um, so it's kind of hanging out there and waiting for that. What would you add, Catherine? No, yeah, I think it's, as you're mentioning, there's a lot of different things happening. All, I mean, it's not a science, but then it's like amazing how all of these things all have to happen at the same time in order for it all to like be, end up in a pregnancy. But yeah, I, I think to your point, Brianna, that you already knew, uh, but to what Jenny was saying of ovulation isn't happening 24-7, but your menstrual cycle is, it's a cycle. It keeps going and going and going. And so some people kind of think that they're ovulating every single day and they're like basically at their height of fertility all the time, which you, you didn't know. I mean, you already knew that. But I think in addition, the additional aspect is that sperm can live inside of a uterus or a vagina for quite some time. It depends on the sperm, but it sometimes can, can actually live within your body for three to seven days is what I've, I've seen the range of. So let's say that you had sex during your period, right? Which some people are like, oh, I can't get pregnant during my period because all of that stuff is getting uh, oh, out of wow. the system. But if the sperm is like hanging in there, a week later, it could still fertilize the egg that was released. So it's, it's really like a lot of things are all happening. And so like, even if you're really good, like you were of tracking your stuff, of really being in tune with your body, which is an amazing thing. Like, that's amazing that you were doing that. There's these other components that are still happening, including the sperm, including the ovulation, how it changes throughout even your beginning of your period or menstrual cycle. So, yeah. I have a joke. <laughs> Lilith has been... Lilith has been making me watch Moana so much. It just reminds me of Maui when he's like, nope, get it away from me. I'm thinking about get that, like, get that sperm away from me. Three to seven days is a long time. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I didn't, I, see, I'm learning something because I did not know that. I did not know what Jenny or Catherine just said. There's a lot of information. Because like I said, I thought I knew enough, you know, the little information that I had. I thought, because I was like, that's just all the information I need to know. But I didn't know that I didn't know what I needed to know. So question, why is it then, why is very limited sex education that people get in schools? Like, why is that? Is it, is it people don't, don't like to publicly talk about it? Because, you know, men don't like to talk about menstruation or they don't think it's sexy. Or is it just that it's being written and taught by white men who either don't know or don't care? Check, 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 check. <laughs> Jenny, do you yeah. want to talk about it? Yeah, and I was going to say, too, you know, I think sometimes it depends on, you know, in Oklahoma, there's no mandate for comprehensive sex ed, right? So individual school districts kind of get to choose what they do or don't offer to their students. So you may have a district like TPS that's using, you know, a medically accurate, evidence-based, comprehensive program. You travel just a little bit farther to another school district, wow. and they may be not getting anything. Or they're getting some not really, really sex negative things. Not always, not always. That's not all uh, rural districts, but 
we have had some stories of people who are trying to promote a certain idea that is not medically based or socially based. But I, I think to that point, I think what Jesse's getting to is that this discussion about fertility is definitely, there's definitely a lot of information and fact-based questions that we'd love to answer. But there's also a lot of societal things, a lot of like perception. I mean, the the idea of someone like kind of accepting the fact that they're infertile is must have been a really difficult kind of thing. I mean, not for everybody, not for everyone. Some people are fine with that, but I know for people in my life and stories I've heard, this actually can be a really difficult thing to accept of like my body might not be able to do this or my partner's body might not be able to have a quote unquote like pregnancy in the traditional sense. So I I think there's just so much there, so much stigma, so much that's impacting us societally too, in addition to the fact-based stuff that is all wrapped up in fertility ideas. I, and, and sorry, one one last thing I was going to say about that is that you, so the, the formal definition of infertility by the CDC, correct me if I'm wrong, but the more formal definition that I've seen kind of accepted by a lot of places is that infertility is is defined as people have been trying to conceive for 12 months straight consecutively. And they've been trying for 12 months and they're unsuccessful. And so then they can go to a doctor and talk about what are my options? Can I get fertility tests, et cetera? And it's, it's much less likely for a young person or a young couple to be infertile, but it can happen, uh, particularly if for like medical conditions or infections, if they're not treated, that can happen. But like, Let's say that you have been trying for 12 months and you're unsuccessful. Then you have to go to a doctor and talk to them about all of, like the sex you've been having. And like you have to trust that doctor and you have to trust and, and they have to believe you. And as a young person, I think it's really hard to go to the to a medical provider and have them listen to you. I don't know. I don't know if that's just what I've heard or if that's really been your experiences, too, but I don't think even that step of, okay, now I'm actually ready to talk to a doctor about maybe getting a fertility test. I think that's even really hard too, because of all the other stuff that's involved with that, of the trust of the, et cetera. I was like, then you had those, how many partners have you had? And not that it's been many, but in my mindset, it was like, okay, I haven't had the same partner and it's still not happening for me. So maybe it's not those partners. It's me if I haven't just had one and it's still not happening for me. So, you know, because then you go to the doctor and you talk about it and they do ask you that uncomfortable question, like how many partners have you had? And then you have to have that discussion. Okay, I was just going to bring up the fact that I feel like in those settings, they ask more of the traditional questions and they don't open up the floor for the LGBTQ community because I whenever I'm bisexual. So, I mean, I'm very open about I'm very open about my sexuality. And so whenever they're asking you how many partners have you been with? I feel like they're only implying of the opposite gender. So that also brings up the awkward conversation of, well, can I talk about the other partners that I've been with if they're of the same, you know, gender as me? 
so I think it's just it's a huge gap in just how we talk with our healthcare providers. Leah, do you want to share your uh, pregnancy story about how you didn't know? Okay, so I talked a little bit about my personal story about pregnancy, and really it was just the fact that I didn't have any information about sexual health at all. I grew up really religious, and again, my personal account, but I was never taught anything. I 100% believed that I had to be married in order to have a kid. I mean, that's just, that's how I was taught. You have to be married and you have to have a kid once you're married. And also with me, I was bisexual and I couldn't talk to anybody about that. So I had only had female partners. And then the one male partner (laughs) that I got with, I got pregnant. And for me, I really just didn't have any kind of knowledge to go based off of whenever my classmates were having the sex talks. I was excluded from those for religious reasons. So I don't know. I just had, there was nothing for me to base anything off of. And since I had only before my male partner, since I was only with females, I knew that I couldn't get pregnant. So it was never a big deal for me. But I also didn't do any research. You know, I didn't hit up the Google because I was like, oh, well, I can't get pregnant. So I, I didn't do the research whenever I got with a male partner, but I also, in the back of my head, I wasn't concerned at all because I wasn't married. So for me, it's just like, I think I had mentioned in the last podcast that I just, there's such a disconnect with me and like my experimental stages. There's like a block because I didn't have any information and I didn't have any grounding or any solid foundation to build off of so do you guys want to talk about like i don't know maybe talk about how important sexual health is and maybe just how people who might not be able to have access to that or have to sneak to have access to that kind of information maybe some resources they can go to let me go first okay so the thing that just kind of kept going um through my mind listening to you talk because programs really are important and there are curricula that are evidence-based and that young people might get, you know, once when they're in middle school, once when they're in high school. And those pieces are really, really important. But I think one of the biggest picture messages that I take away from listening to your story is that our, you know, our families of origin, our parents, our caregivers really are the first and oftentimes the primary sexuality educators for us when we're young. And I know that was also true for me. And so Um, I love your question about how does a young person get access to resources if maybe that space is not um, providing them with the most accurate or comprehensive information. And so I know that Catherine probably has a lot kind of on the tip of her tongue as well. But I would just say that for young folks, whether they live in Tulsa or not, the AmplifyTulsa.org website is really going to link to youth-specific information and resources, whether that's, okay, so I've got a question about ovulation, right? Or maybe I'm thinking about coming out to my family. Maybe I want to know how to talk about contraception. Maybe I need access to a clinic. So there's going to be lots of different tools that link to to other experts in the field as well. Can I jump in at this point? And I know that I said that I was not going to be a part of this, 
but this conversation is just too juicy for me not to get in. And so, you know, for those of you who don't know me as the executive director of James Inc., you know, I also have a teen pregnancy story. In fact, I have two teen pregnancy stories. And as I'm listening to these girls, one thinking that they were infertile, one just having no information. And then I throw my story in there. And honestly, I was just rolling the dice. I knew, I knew the outcomes. I only had one partner and I knew what the risk was. So I was just rolling the dice. And between the three of us, there are three different perspectives. So how do we as parents help our kids or figure out where our kids are in this information and then how do we teach them to have open conversations with a doctor if they're not comfortable with us how do how do we bring this total conversation to light where we can just sit down and unpack our stuff and say you know this is what it is and how do we how do we help others to plan for pregnancy in some cases i think as i was listening to brianna i mean did you at some level really want to get pregnant you know uh after a while i mean i think in my subconscious when i saw that it hadn't happened when i thought it would i think i started actively trying just to see and then it still wasn't happening even after that so then i packed it away like okay no it's just not for me and be and at, can I ask at what age you were? Oh, I had to be eighteen, nineteen at this time when I packed it away. So it never. I said it's not for me. So you had been having sex prior to eighteen, but it never. Mm-hmm. No one ever encouraged mm-hmm. you to talk to a doctor, or that thought didn't didn't because I thought I knew the scientific stuff about it like I said I knew my periods I knew ovulation I knew the fertility so I was like okay what can a doctor tell me that I'm not already the little bit that I know of the science what else can they tell me other than it may not just be for me and mind you I didn't get pregnant this is 18 where I had gave it up I didn't get pregnant until I was 21 because I gave birth at 22 so it was still like a year or two even after I gave up that I was like, this is just not for me. So, I mean, it goes back to my question. As a parent, how do I know how to help my child and where my child's thought process is with regard to to sex and pregnancy? As you're talking about that, like, I just go back to thinking the couple of times that I did go to the doctor, when they're asking those questions, my parents were in the room. And I did not have that kind of relationship with my parents. And, you know, I wasn't taught that stuff. So when they asked, oh, well, have you had sex or are you having sex with how many partners have you had sex with? I'm like, oh, nope, I zero. I have never done that in my life. Ew, sex is gross. Like you have to like, you know, beef it, like juice it up a little bit because you don't want your parents to know that you're sexually active. And if you have the kind of relationship with your parents that I did, which was not super healthy, you're not going to expose yourself in that type of way. So what advice would you guys have? Like in Oklahoma, I know that there's an age where you can actually seek 
some resources by yourself as a 16 year old, I believe. Can you explain that law a little bit? So I, I think, wow, so much amazing stuff. I've been taking notes and I'm like, oh yeah, oh, that's true, yes. So in, in terms of that very last question, Leah, great question. This is actually a federal law that is called Title X funding, or it's not a law, but it, it's Title X grant funding, which allows anyone who's 13 to 17 to be able to access confidential, private, sexual and reproductive health care at a Title X health center. And so in Tulsa, those centers are Community Health Connection, the Tulsa Health Department, and that's it. <laughs> Planned Parenthood used to have that funding, but they lost that funding, unfortunately. So it's Community Health Connection and Tulsa Health Department. So if you're 13, all the way up until step, the day before you're 18, you can go to these health centers. You can actually go all the way until you're nine. Well, yeah. If you want confidential health care, and you're under 18, you can go to Community Health Connection and the Tulsa Health Department. Now, once you're 18, you have the right in any health center to get any confidential services. But, and, and when I'm talking about 13 to 17 year olds, I'm talking about ones that aren't emancipated, they're still living at home, who may um, not have been pregnant, things like that. So just kind of like there are some exceptions. If you have been emancipated, if you have become pregnant, you actually can get those services even before you're 18. But in general, Tulsa Health Department and Community Health Connection, they're, they're specific. They have teen clinic hours that are specifically walk-in. They're free. They don't usually even ask you to like show anything. They're just like, can you fill out this information as thoroughly as you can? But they don't ask you to pay. And you will see a nurse practitioner or a doctor who has experience working with teens to talk about your sexual and reproductive health. So that so that is one thing. And there's counties across the uh, across the state who offer these too. So even some rural counties have a county health department that does receive this Title Ten funding. And there's a there's a whole website that I can talk to you about too that you can find out if you're in a rural area. Where can you go for these confidential services? Oh, I was just about to ask, like, if you could go into that detail, because, you know, how do we find out who has that Title 10 ability, like funding? So, yeah, that was just my question. Mm -hmm. So there's this website that I'm going to find at some point while Jenny's talking, maybe. I wanted to throw it to to Jenny, too, because she she's such an expert in talking about the parent aspect and as well as like risk assessment, like how, how can you have these conversations while also honoring the very true adolescent behaviors that are like, not bad. They're not, we, we don't want to work against you being an adolescent because that's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, like how can we work with these very natural adolescent behaviors and like understanding of risk? So I really think Jenny is like, I'm going to speak perfectly about that. Yeah, I was really excited to maybe get to loop back to what you mentioned just a second ago, Alisa. And we we were able to do some public opinion polling for the Tulsa community in 2019. And we, we asked parents, are you comfortable talking to your young people about sex and sexual health? 
And only about less than half of them said that they felt comfortable and confident. And then when we asked them, okay, so why? One of the biggest things that came up for people was being afraid of saying the wrong thing, right? And being afraid that they don't have the most up-to-date information. And so obviously every family system is different, right? And you know, the young people and the parents that are within that family are going to be experts on their communication strategies. But I think starting with normalizing discomfort, these conversations sometimes feel really uncomfortable for everybody. And that is true kind of across the board, right? And if we kind of recognize that, that can offer some freedom. I think starting early and often as much as possible, not that it's ever too late, it's never too late, right, to engage in those conversations, but there's no reason why in a developmentally appropriate way, we can't be talking to preschoolers about their bodies, right? It's been kind of built over time so that as, as the risks get bigger, as the life choices get bigger, which is part of adolescence, that kind of foundational relationship around this topic has been established. And then I also think thinking about, and I think you actually mentioned this, that family planning is part of life planning, right? And so talking to young people about when do you want to have, do you want to have a family? When do you, when does that feel like it fits for you, right? Helping them kind of think through goal setting in a way that's less tied to you know, are you or are you not going to have sex, but more when, you know, when or if having a child is something that you want to do, right? And then thinking through after that's kind of established, then what are the things we need to do today to make sure that you're able to do this on your terms and in your way um, for your life? That Those are just some initial and I love that too, because I think the ongoing conversation is such a vital thing that we just want to remind these amazing parents about, because it's even with this conversation about reproductive goals, our goals change. And a lot of times our answers aren't just yes or no. Sometimes it's like, if it happens, it happens. Sometimes it's, you know, I don't think I want to, but some things come up. So that's why it's so beautiful to have these ongoing conversations. Anytime you have the opportunity to talk about it, have, um, and it doesn't have to be like the talk, right? It's just like, you know, a little thing you see, you see uh, a couple on the street, or you see a baby going right by you, or you see something on TV. Those are all little micro moments that you can have with a child about whatever it is that you want to talk about, but particularly about family planning and, and uh, pregnancy. Talking about little micro moments. I recently just moved out to Skyatook and there are cows all around us and it is mating season. <laughs> so my little baby, she is asking a lot of questions. And instead of being like super uncomfortable and being like, mm, Let's not talk about that. You know, she's five now. And I feel like as long as she's asking questions, she should get some answers. So, of course, I'm doing it, you know, based on her age. I'm not going to be like penis vagina. Like, you know, I'm not going to be in her face about it. But we're definitely learning about some sexual health. And then she'll ask questions like, OK, well, can humans do that? And I'm like, well, yes, that's that's how babies are made. So 
micro moments. I love that. And I'm going to be stealing that word from you for the rest of my life because they are everywhere, even in like little kid shows, you know, like a, a boy will kiss a girl or and then that opens up the question, well, do boys have to kiss girls or can girls kiss girls? Like, you know, there's a ton of really great questions. Did he ask before kissing her? <laughs> question mark. Exactly. Or did he just plant a kiss on her? <laughs> and she, you know, she's asked a couple of those questions too. And I'm just glad that I have found some awesome nonprofit organizations that I can work with and network with. And now I am okay talking about these things. If you, I mean, Alisa knows who I was back in like 2017. That, uh, Aaliyah would not have even said the word sex or I wouldn't have said like pregnancy. Like, you know, I wouldn't have been okay talking about any of that stuff. But now, man, I met Batonsis because I was doing a research paper in college about the internal condom. And now I, you know, I'm a pure health. We talked about vaginas very loud in Foolish Things. We were just like, oh yeah, vaginas this, vagina, like we were so loud and it was amazing. Yep, it was a little coffee shop and, you know, I was able, I just learned so much. And so a lot of people at the campus I was at started like running away from me because I was like, have you heard of the internal condom? Would you use an internal co like I was just I was too much and now I'm I'm just glad I'm happy. <laughs> I guess something that I would ask: Are there any myths that we haven't touched that you have personally heard that you would like to debunk here today? Ooh, I have one you guys can debunk. Can we talk about pre cum and how pregnancies can still happen even if you use the pull out method? Let's debunk the pull-out method, please. That's a good one, Leah. Pre-seminal fluid is actually produced in a different place than semen, right? The whole goal is that it's going to lubricate the urethra, which is the tube where semen travels outside of the penis, right? But the urethra is, like I said, a tube, right? So, both, so someone with a penis has previously ejaculated, like so at some point during the day, or like, we, you know, I mean, we talked about how sperm are tenacious, right? They live in the uterus for up to a week. And so they can kind of hang out in that urethra and then get picked up by that pre-cum or pre-seminal fluid when it comes out, right? And so even if somebody is able to effectively withdraw before they ejaculate, it is possible that that pre-seminal fluid has picked up some sperm on its way out and has made it into, into the vagina and into the uterus. Yeah. And I, I think that's like, understand, I think a lot of times in these, in, in, in personally in my classes, I talk a lot about the uterus, but very rarely talk about uh, a penis like reproductive system. But so that's something to keep in mind now that you're, you're saying that because you need to kind of, you need to know that if you really need to want to know about pregnancy. I do want to say though that as Jenny mentioned earlier, sexuality is much, 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 much more than just the absence of disease and the absence of pregnancy or, you know, anything like that. Sexuality is gigantic. It's from cradle to grave. It, it, it follows every one of us and it's a part of who we are, whether that's intimacy with a friend, that's part of sexuality, whether that's 
you know, just all of our power and agency and sexuality is a beautiful thing. That's not just, not just sex and not just pregnancy or STR. And then, so at the same time though, a lot of sex educators do take a harm reduction approach. So similar to other harm reduction things that you might've seen around um, getting care for people who use drugs and need safe medical needles in order to do that safely. Sometimes sex educators do take that harm reduction approach, particularly with pullout. So it's like, okay, you can become pregnant from pre-seminal fluid. Like that is a possibility. Is it the most likely possibility? Not really. Like a, a typical semen ejaculation, like full on, is has millions upon millions of sperm. In pre in precum, it's like thousands. Still a lot, but definitely way less of magnitude. So it's important. It depends on the it depends on the conversation. If you're talking to some people who can kind of handle all of that statistics in their brain but pull out for adults and this this data has only been collected for adults but pull out method for adults is actually 80 percent effective at preventing pregnancy so it's not zero i think a lot of times i talk to young people and they're like pull out is basically the same thing as not pulling out it's like zero percent effective and that's not true however do we need to like know how to do pull out correctly? Do we need to still know about this pre-cum? Do we still need to protect against STIs? Absolutely. But pull out is not the devil. Like pull out is not, you're not a bad person for using pull out. You just need to be aware of the risk and take that into account. So that's just like, that's kind of a, I want to debunk that myth of like pull out is the worst possible thing that could ever happen. Like you're irresponsible. I, I've heard that a lot of like, you're a bad safer sex person if you use pull out and again it's you need to understand the risk and you know and if you know that risk and your and your partner really needs to be on board with the same level of risk that you're comfortable with uh, or partners need to be comfortable with that but that's just my little spiel about pull out <laughs> if i can jump in again I have learned a lot and I'm a pretty uh, liberal parent and my adolescent pregnancy person is, would be 41 right now. And I have always really worked hard to give them information to talk early, but even in thinking back the talks that I've had, there's no way I could have explained the menstrual cycle in the way that it was done today. And, you know, I'll just be real honest. I'm 56 years old and I didn't know those things. By the time we had our third child, she was a child that was really comfortable coming to me. And so she came to me and said, Mom, I have been told in the basketball locker room that if you get on birth control pills, it helps with your cycle. Is that true? And I said, well, you know what? By the time I by the time I really had cycles really well, I had already had a baby. So I don't I don't know. And at that point, we went into her doctor and I took her in. She sat on the table. I asked if she wanted me to stay in the room. She said yes. And I explained to her doctor that I'm here for one reason. And that one reason is to ask you if you are comfortable having 
any conversation with her about her body i don't care what it is will you are you comfortable having those conversations because i need her to know that you work for her and you're not doing her any favors you're being paid to give her accurate information. And if you can't have that conversation, then you need to tell us right now because you're not the doctor for me. Now, not every parent is gonna know that, but my goal was she was about to go to college in two years. I didn't want her to get to college and then not feel comfortable. And she was 1700 miles away and not feel comfortable having those conversations with her doctor. So I say all of that to say is what you guys are doing is so important and we have to get this type of conversation to parents so that they have the accurate information. And I think the more comfortable they become with knowing the information, the easier it is to talk to your child about it, no matter what the age. So I applaud the work that you're doing. And then secondly, Catherine, when did this Title 10 information, this Title 10 become effective? Because I don't think that 40 years ago, I could have walked into a clinic at 15 and gotten accurate information without my parents. So tell us when this became effective so that parents know that it is it is effective. And then Jesse, I want to thank you for being the male voice in all of this. Without with if you didn't know that, then how do we get boys on board to hear the conversation to make sure that the girl has the right information and he has the right information because honestly, some of these young ladies are wanting to get pregnant and wanting to start families. And I don't think always the boys understand that. And so they're going along for the ride without the proper information. And we want to make sure that we are telling our boys the same things we're telling our girls. Yeah, so, so many things. I, I just, I want to applaud you because of that advocacy that you're doing at the doctor's office. And and you're not even talking to your child. You're talking to the like, the provider, meaning like, I if you're not comfortable, which is a real thing, there are many providers that do not feel comfortable talking about this stuff, or especially, I mean, I shouldn't say especially, but many doctors who are like, it's against my religious blah, blah, to not talk about LGBTQ plus uh, services. I think it's so important for you to be at, at the front. Are you comfortable talking about this? Are you comfortable talking about LGBTQ plus services? If you're not, we gotta find another doctor. Mm -hmm. And that just point blank. And not everyone has that access. Not everyone has that opportunity, particularly on center care, you have to like, go through a million different hoops to change your uh, primary care provider, but you still have that option. You always have that option and you always have that right to change that. But I think to your point, it it's becoming more, more a common practice nationally, but I know that some doctors locally in Tulsa are really trying to advocate for this, but their pediatricians are really one of the first lines of talking to young people and it's more common practice now for pediatricians once a child is 11, 12, 13, 
to actually ask the parent or guardian to step out of the uh, and step outside the room just temporarily, just to have that sexual and reproductive health conversation. Some parents and guardians are totally fine with that. Some others have resistance, but it's really to, it's not only to give young people an opportunity to ask confidentially. I mean, that's 1000% important. But the other thinking for a lot of pediatricians is that at some point, our young people are going to be going to the doctor by themselves. And we need to prepare them for that very adult skill of how to talk to an adult talk to a doctor or provider about what's going on. I think, I know for a lot of the conversations I've had, me personally, I felt like I didn't really know how to talk to an adult. And then I was just thrown into talking to a doctor. And I was like, yeah. And and the other thing too, I just, on my forms, I would fill out the forms because my mom, I would usually go to my mom and my mom didn't speak English. And so I would like fill out the forms, but I would constantly be asking her all of these like medical questions about my medical history. And she'd be like, I don't know. And so then I'd write, I don't know. <laughs> and it's, it's like that those medical history questions are really important so that a doctor and nurse can have a full picture of what's going on. And not, not everyone has the option of having the medical history but if you do you can it's really important to share that in your phone but anyway all that is to say advocacy in the doctor in the patient room is still so so important and i i think it's amazing what you have done and continue to do alisa that's a wonderful thing oh okay and then quickly about title 10. title 10 i just found out it was enacted in 1970 so it's been around for a minute, and it's specifically for reproductive and sexual health. However, not every clinic has always had that Title X funding. So even though the funding has existed, depending on the presidency, depending on political things, funding has either increased or decreased. Some clinics have successfully gotten the grants, some clinics haven't. So I can understand that even though it's been around since the 70s, you might have not felt that you had access to that because your local clinic might have not had it. I have a question. With the you're allowed to have your parents step out and you're allowed to talk with your provider privately, is there a such thing with them also being minors that even with them going in there alone or having that confidentiality that the parent can go behind them and make a phone call and try to see their records themselves without their child knowing? Like, since they're still a minor and the parent is still over them, it, the parent can still technically see the information, right? Well, so and that, is it really... The thing I would add oh, about sorry, that... Go ahead, Jenny. No, I was going to say, this is such a well-timed question because some of our board members just did a training on this for OU Family Medicine residents yesterday evening. And so they talked about how sometimes in the EMR system, there's a way to just document that they had a confidential conversation with the young person. But if a provider is not working at a Title X clinic, if they were to provide something like birth control or any kind of prescription, the parent is going to have to consent either to uh, that prescription specifically or have like a written consent on file that there are certain things the young person can access from their doctor, like that they can consent to their own care. So it's like the conversation could be confidential, but anything that came out of that conversation in terms of contraceptive access wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be. 
So is is that because of the way the Title Ten language reads? It's because of the way Oklahoma law reads. So Oklahoma law says, except in like a certain limited number of situations, like emergency um, situations, or if a young person tests positive for an STI, there there are a couple of like exceptions. They the that the parent has to consent for care. But Title X is a federal law, so it overrides that Oklahoma law, meaning that if the clinic is funded by those federal dollars, then they're governed by the rules of Title X, which say confidential, no one's turned away due to inability to pay, you know, 13 years of age or older, which is what makes it really confusing to navigate. So those children whose parents have private insurance unless they go into a Title X facility, there's really no confidentiality. Right. The explanation of benefits is another way that a lot of even unintentional disclosures can happen, right? Depending on how itemized that is. The first time I had to advocate for myself was when I was 18 and I was pregnant. And that was actually really my only first time going to the doctor because within the religion I was in, it wasn't, we didn't do doctors. We didn't do mental health. We didn't do any of that. So I was just listening and taking in all of that information because I want to be able to advocate for my daughter and myself in the future. And I don't want to have to be, I don't want to have to feel like that 18 year old Leah again, who didn't ask those questions or feel like I could ask the questions. Because first of all, I got looked at so differently and I got treated differently because I was 18 and I was pregnant. So I would bring my boyfriend's mom with me and instead of the doctor asking me the questions, they would turn to his mom, which then she would turn to me and have me answer the questions. But instead of those, instead of those doctors or nurses giving me the chance to advocate for myself, even though I was 18 and I had that right, they still wanted the answer from the adults of the situation. So I just, I took in all the information you guys were talking about and I love it. And I want to help advocate for all of the other young parents who might feel like they're in that situation or our younger generations who I don't ever want to be in that situation. So thank you guys. Um, thank you. Thank I feel you like I'm so involved. much. Sorry, Jenny. No, I was just gonna say, listening to Elisa in particular, I've got a whole tool. I've got a whole tool for when my kiddo is 16, 17 or younger. I'm using it and I'm gonna remember this. Thank you all so much for all that you've shared and all that you've gone through. And and Leah, you're not alone in feeling like even though you were a grown woman, like you still, I mean, all of us have things to learn, but, you know, you still felt like you were like made smaller by the doctor talking to the the parent instead of talking to you. And I, I think that's, you're not alone in that. And I'm sorry that happened, but I think the more we can have these open conversations, the more we can be like, hold up, like, this is not right. Let's do something. Absolutely. Um, I'm just so grateful to you, Brianna, Yulia, and Elisa. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Young Parents Podcast presented by James Inc. To find out more about the Young Parents Network at James Inc., follow them on Facebook, check them out on their website, and please don't forget to 
both support them financially and support this podcast by downloading it anywhere podcasts can be found. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>